Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Paul. And we are officially in our end of the year sprint to play any last minute horror stragglers that we uh, managed to miss this year. And uh, where better than to begin our end of the year coverage than with our favorite horror bites we played in 2022. For those not in the know, Horror Bites is our monthly indie horror segment in which Neil and I both bring several bite-sized slices of horror to the table to discuss. And as always, we'd like to remind you guys that while some of these titles we'll be discussing are free, we believe it's important to support the developers' hard work. So if you can, please support them through their Itch.io, Steam, or Patreon pages. And, you know, it's the season of giving, so support those who make content that you enjoy. Now, Neil, I don't know about you, but sifting through every Horror Bites game we played this year <laughs> to make uh, our personal top eights was far more challenging than I thought it'd be. And it makes me dread, uh, you know, trying to get that game of the year list to 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was a tiny bit easier, but only marginally. You know, I think in yeah. both cases, I think, you know, we went into it before that you know, shortlisting this was like, I had like 14 to 18 games and... And I think even in the main list, I, I've added like two to that list since I said we had, I had 18. So it's, uh, <laughs> and I still can't get that down to 10. But yeah, this, I'm still like going and ahhing and thinking, was that right? Was that wrong? But at the same time, there are, there's plenty of episodes from this year where you can go back and listen to uh, us talk about all the games that we played and in Horror Bites and, you know, why they're good, or whatever. So, do that if there's any you you didn't you know you want to learn about beyond our picks here yeah and i'll be sure to link our uh our itchio page that you curate for us of all of the horror bites t- segments that we uh you know games that we play and cover for the show yeah. so that will be in the episode description it'll be on the blog when that's up on blade disgusting and of course it's on our twitter page at safe room pod uh for people that you know want to dive into some of the ones that we maybe don't bring up in this episode. But if you go back and listen to our other old episodes of Horror Bites, there'll be links for all of the games that we cover there. But in terms of our Horror Bites coverage for the end of the year and our favorite entries that we're going to cover today, uh, the way we'll run this is we'll start with you. You get to go ahead and give me your first pick for a Horror Bite of the Year. Now, we have not shared our list with one another, you know, keep a little air of mystery about the entire thing. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, and just to clarify with that, it's like if one of us mentions a game earlier in our list, we'll wait, you know, and the other person has it on their list higher up, we'll wait till it comes up on the other person's list, just so we we don't mess up the other person's list too much and uh, get on that one. But yeah, that should... Be it, I'm sure we probably have some crossover here, you know, even with the sheer amount of things we've played over the last year. But let's begin with your first pick for Horror Bite of the Year. So my first pick is Doppler Ghosts Cleaning Redville. Is that on your list? It is not, but that was definitely uh, definitely a memorable one. Okay, so um, this is one of the earlier ones we did, I think, as well. So, and, you know, I wrote one of those that I wrote an article on and just... Just generally interested in it. I mean, that happened a lot with, you know, horror bites things we covered this year where I'd go and write about them afterwards as well because I so enjoyed talking about them. I'd want to sort of go further. So yes, this one is basically you go into a small town in the middle of the woods where you are a garbage collector. You know, you have the truck, you have everything like that. And your job is to collect the garbage in the middle of the night. Now it's basically, you know, to begin with a garbage collection sim. You, know, you are just getting the bins, 
pulling up to the back of the truck, setting them there, or getting the bags and chucking them in the bag and putting the compactor on, moving up the street again in the truck and repeating the process. Now, obviously, as you go along, some weird stuff starts to happen. You end up going through these little uh, sinister moments, some very good sort of fake-out jump scares. Um, And yeah, it's just generally quite chilling and weird. You know, obviously, with all these games, we had much longer thoughts, you know, on the main uh, episodes we had them in. But it's still nice to sort of come back to them, you know, which I've done with the ones I really sort of wanted to include with this. And sort of see if the appeal was still there. And I think here, you know, this was a great sort of first example because straight away I was like, yeah, it's that weird middle of the night thing about it, you know, where you are just in this place. Is everyone asleep? Is it abandoned? You know, the rubbish is there, but doesn't seem to be any sign of life beyond a cat at one point. And yeah, and I just think the ending is a nice twist, isn't it? Yeah, you know, that was one that really stood out as an example of those types of experiences that we've covered a lot on the show, but it's ones that take, you know, a mundane aspect of, you know, a job or in some instances, just a day in the life. And it crafts a sense of atmosphere that, you know, feels like it's tied to the task that the person's doing, Mm -hmm. right? We see that a lot with certain games that are things along the lines of like, oh, I have to go to the grocery store or I'm minding a store at night or something like that. There's something about this one where, you know, you have to leave the safety of the truck to complete the objectives before you're able to progress. And there's something about that of stepping outside of the truck, running over to pick up the trash as quickly as you can, throw it in the bin and whatnot, um, and then, you know, putting it back. And there is this sort of looming sense of dread. And, you know, of course, as it becomes more and more tense, you know, the more that these sort of strange oddities start beginning to happen more frequently, that it really does make it feel like it's a sprint to the end, just so that way you get some sense of like safety again, or oh, I've completed the task, I can head home and you know not deal with whatever kind of spookiness is going on in the background. But I found that this one did a great job of building and pacing those scares, familiarizing the player with the mechanics that are you know it's comprised of, um, and having scares that were not solely reliant on just jump scares, yeah. right? That was something that I think we kind of grew tired of very quickly with some horror bites that we played this year or, you know, just in general, right? Um, Some experiences that are bite-sized and sometimes they have a tendency to feel like they're sort of just showing or inundating the player with these like very cookie cutter moments, almost as if to say like, hey, don't look away from the game. Don't lose interest. We're going to have this kind of monotony of scares that don't really elicit genuine terror and it gets to the point by the end of it where it's like kind of just annoyed. Mm. Um, but with this one, it again, a great example of be- it having this pacing that paces not only the scares, but the mechanics that go into this experience. And yeah, that was definitely a good one that we covered. Yeah. And I think um, something you bring up there about, you know, just having the scares for the sake of it, we did come across a lot of games, even the good ones where you would get to the end and you could tell that the, yeah, the build up was kind of to that. That was it. You know, the, the, there was no real plan for the end. And so you'd get the standard thing jumps in your face or whatever and the end. Whereas this is very much a subtler thing, you know, like, um, a nice creeping realization of what's really going on. And I like that about it. And I think that's why it really stood out 
You're like such a unique concept. Well done. 20 minutes. Not a minute wasted. You know, absolutely. So yeah, that, that was uh, a perfect start. And you know, that's the bar we're setting here. So what about your <laughs> number eight? My number eight was Maple County from developer Thorn Baker. Not in my list. All right, there we go. So this one, the player is presented with a VHS tape, which is, you know, facilitating like a police training, basically. Yeah. And there is this enduring but unknown threat that is becoming to become apparent to the residents of Maple County. So it's kind of along the lines of like a creepy pasta style storytelling. Um, you have this very limited presentation where it's literally just like you're watching a VHS tape and these images pop up mm. um, and you kind of have to start to pick through these different images of just random people, except every time you progress a little bit more, the images change a little bit and it's up to the player to kind of, you know, go through the rhythm of like, which one looks strange, mm. which one looks threatening. And then that kind of eventually will reveal a little bit more about this threat uh, that I of course don't want to reveal right now. But what I will say is that the presentation on this I found to be really, really well done. And, you know, since playing Maple County, I found other games that have done something similar. But this one, whether it be the sort of archaic, pixelated nature of what you're looking at or the mm -hmm. fact that at one point, you know, the presentation changes pretty drastically and gives you sort of a firsthand account of something that's going on in the town. I was shocked by that, but also it was something that, I think gave you another facet to the storytelling that was really impressive considering from the outset, this kind of just looks like this web page game almost. And to, you know, further show the player like the actual threat, but not necessarily reveal it all at that yeah. uh, early stage of it um, had a really great pacing and kind of felt like this detective novel uh, or detective procedural, if you will, that of course has this horrifying uh, twist to it. Yeah. But yeah. This was uh this was definitely one that stuck with me and I went back and played it this week uh and was just really appreciative of its sort of brooding atmosphere. Yeah, it does just have kind of that vibe of um early 2000s internet to it, you know. I think in where you just watch something that seems rather normal but there's just something slightly off, you know, in, in this case an instructional video that just sort of pushes things out. I mean, it, it's obviously, you know, like a lot of these things it has roots in like creepypasta style which is you know, great and seeing it represented in such a visual style and and being played out is wonderful you know and yeah i think it this is one of those where i was thinking the ends don't quite meet the means uh, but still i think the overall experience is really good i was a fan of just the writing again like there's not a great deal of text in the game nice. but every single line adds something to it and tells you just enough that you know like oh okay this is starting to build in a way that is uncomfortable but you can't always put your finger on why mm -hmm. or it's not as in your face if you will as maybe some other games that we've played that have tried to you know build this creepy atmosphere but often end up showing their hand a little too early on yeah. whereas with maple county i found that the pacing of its story is perfect for the length of the experience for that perspective shift. Um, and even by the end of the game, still not being a hundred percent sure what you're sort of dealing with, which, you know, with a lot of these games, I find that I'm more of a fan of them ending a little ambiguous, yeah. uh, rather than kind of just spelling it all out because then you get to the end of that, you know, whatever, five, 10 minutes and you're like, okay, I don't have any more questions. Whereas with this, 
it stuck with me because, you know, I've been given a certain amount or shown a certain amount and yet not told everything in its entirety. So my brain uh, runs away with uh, <laughs> the horrifying potentials of uh, other stories that could be happening in Maple County or, you know, other stories that could resemble uh, this style of, uh, you know, creepypasta-esque. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's, um, yeah, good start. Yeah, but uh, what was your next pick for the My year? next pick is Perfect Vermin. This was not, not on your list. list. Okay, we're, we're doing clean and good so far. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> I just showed you how many games there are that were good. I mean, I was just really looking for a list and going, oh, should I have concluded that? <laughs> but uh, yeah, Perfect Vermin, again, one of those I ended up writing about afterwards because it just you know, it fascinated me with what it did. I think this is one you brought to the table, actually, as well. Um, so yeah, your task is simple. You have to exterminate all the vermin in an office building uh, with a sledgehammer, okay, in a first-person sort of environment. Um, yeah, basically just obliterates anything. Uh, you're, you're looking for things that are pretending to be like bits of office furniture so that's cool and you have a time limit and you've got to you know destroy all of them in that time limit and then another level comes up on a different level on the elevator and you go up there and the, the room is different somehow or you have a different parameter you know very simple basic ideas of like score attack things like you know where you add a little change but then all the while there's this other story going on, you know, in the meantime, we have this uh, news feed, you know, that's sort of relaying what you're doing, which, you know, is odd in itself. And then you get the rooms becoming weirder and the floors becoming weirder. And, you know, the presenter of this news show just gets increasingly, you know, horrifically. Well, it's a, yeah, it just does not look good by the end. <laughs> I, mean, no. to say <laughs> I just think, again, this is one of those where the payoff was superbly done you know, i think you know it's just the meaty yucky nature of what you're doing anyway and why are you doing it then sort of gets extrapolated by this sort of slow reveal of what's going on in actuality and yeah it's just it's so rare to have something that connects to its story in such a offbeat way yeah and, you know you could look at one thing and the other and not really connect them but the minute you get that sort of connective tissue, you're like, ah, oh, of course, of course, this makes sense that this was this and this was about that. And, you know, I, I'm not going to spoil it here because you know, obviously you, you should definitely go play this, you know, if you get the chance, because it is really smart. And again, very short, few levels, gets the story done, Bob's your uncle. And honest to God, you know, at the very least, you get to smash it with a hammer in an office building and who hasn't wanted to do that <laughs> cathartic to say the least yes. um yeah you know i would almost describe it and i think i did in our episode where we covered it um as like cronenberg meets uh warrior where yeah. kind of because there is that sort of mini game aspect every level because things start to change and you know initially it's sort of just the layout changes but then it does throw you some genuine curveballs that have an air of sort of the ridiculousness to them, but at the same time, it feels fitting for a game where you're just breaking shit with the sledgehammer <laughs> the entire time. Um, and it was the type of experience where I think that one was like 10 or 15, like most of them, right? 10 or 15 minutes, but it was one that I finished and I could see it being a full-fledged yeah. thing and the ways in which there was a lot of room, I think, still to expand on that very simplistic, but very memorable sort of core mechanic. And also, again, 
the more apparent the horrors that the player's dealing with are, you know, affecting the outside world and our only link to the outside world in this game being that news presenter and just seeing the the horrific side effects of whatever's going on becoming more and more apparent was uh, a nice twist because it could have been that simple thing where it's like, oh, you're just going to smash mimics. But then all of the elements that revolve around storytelling or what little world building there are, I mean, that feels like just the sort Mm. of, uh, you know, the cherry on top because that gives you a greater investment in what you're doing rather than just being this like, sure, you are just destroying things, but it feels more involving with that storytelling that's going on in the background. Um, And yeah, that was definitely one that if we were doing honorable mentions for Horror Bites, that would definitely be on my list because it was one that uh, I found to be really, really entertaining and shocking and made me jot down the developer's name so I could, you know, keep tabs on them for anything they do in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the perfect example of weaponizing what Itch.io is bad at sometimes in terms of like having... Mm. Loads of games that are basically like shovelware copies of this, you know, it's a Five Nights at Freddy's game, it's got Shrek in it, whatever, whatever, that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. gimmicky things and making you think that's all it's going to be. And that's mm. the draw. That's a really good way to draw people in. And then to be slowly revealed to be something with more depth and meaning. Yeah, and I so appreciated that, you know. I, not that I think you would have picked anything like that, but, you know, it's like, I think, you know, it grabs the attention just to see it. you smash it with a hammer, sold, like that, you know, initially. Right. Yeah. So it's like anything else is a bonus, but, yeah, real, yeah. real, real <laughs> big bonus, you know. Like, you know, you get your check at Christmas for your wages and then finally your bonus is five times, you know, the amount you were supposed to get. And you're like, wow, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't expect it to happen and in all probability it shouldn't. But here it is. <laughs> so so uh, what's your number seven? My number seven is going to be Night of the Scissors from Thomas Escorn Guerra. Was this on your list? It is not on my list. <laughs> oh, there you go. So, so far, the editing for this episode is going to be very easy, but I'm sure that the, the more we dwindle <laughs> yes. this list down, uh, I'll eat my words very quickly. But for Night of the Scissors, this one was about two buddies uh, that would be, rather be hitting their uh, bong than breaking into a decrepit post office to steal stuff to scrap. Uh, it just so happens, though, that a killer known as the Snipper has taken up residence within the post office and hunts the player as they look for a way out. Um, this was very similar to like a puppet combo style yeah. game, right? Of survival horror. Uh, it taps into that VHS aesthetic, the PSX graphics, dynamic camera angles, fixed camera angles. Um, and uh, you know, we've covered a lot of games that fit that sort of criteria, and there's definitely been games that we've uh, compared to being very puppet combo-esque. Night of the Scissors, I think, is the most indicative of somebody that is checking those boxes and yet really shows a, a understanding of survival horror from a classic perspective. The way mm. that the environments are laid out, the way that the puzzles are laid out, the way in which there's this attention to sound design that I found to be taking me back to, you know, the Spencer Mansion days, the Silent Hill days, where everything that makes noise is indicating something is going on in the environment, or it's just the little details that make, you know, that figure that's hunting you periodically throughout the post office that much more ominous, even if you can't see it, right? Stuff is always scarier when you can hear it before you see it. And, you know, the killer in this one goes around with scissors and snips the scissors when he's getting near. And there were so many moments in this where, I couldn't see him, but I could hear the killer and it just set me on edge in a way that, you know, I've only experienced in 
my favorite survival horror games, um, you know, whether it be waiting for something to come crashing through a window or, you know, a horde of zombies kicking down a door or something. <laughs> um, yeah, Night of the Scissors, though, I found to be really, really successful at capturing that classical survival horror feel, but also, you know, having some, I suppose, modern amenities might not be the best way, but there's a level of polish here that so many games that try to do something similar lack. And, you know, whether that be resources or time constraints in these things, uh, it is worth noting that this is a full-fledged release, right? This wasn't a, something that was part of a game jam. I think it, this retails for like two ninety nine, dollars which is a steal for yes, the experience. Absolutely. It's not terribly long, but again, it's something that is much more rewarding than, uh, you know, who knows how many <laughs> similar style games I've played over the years. Um, and this one I found to just be a really great standout. And yeah, apparently uh, Tomas is developing his next game that's supposed to be out within, you know, the first month of the new year or something like that. So definitely Night of the Scissors was one that uh, stood stuck with me. How about you? What did you think of this one? Yeah, again, you, you're very much correct in the production values of this are one of the highest levels we've seen, I think, in all the things we've played. I think it really does just modernize that sort of PS, PS1 sort of era stuff. I think yeah, the difference there is um, when you come close to being that sort of puppet combo thing, the so natural assumption is that it has to be a certain way. It has to be all this, that, and, you know, janky and like almost te- tearing and all that stuff, which is, uh, you know, that's the appeal of what, you know, puppet combo and even Jordan King, you know, do. Yeah, and having this stuff that feels very much like that as it was a bit of modern energy to it but here you know it, this is very much like you know it has the aesthetic to a degree but it feels a bit more polished a bit more clean and you know it feels like you know if someone was remaking or remastering a classic survival horror game you know and trying to keep it as faithful as possible which you know is a huge compliment to pay to this you know i think it, it really does deserve that and you know the setting of an abandoned post office uh, like and uh, a killer that is basically, you know, you, know, you could say derivative of you know a certain scissor carrying character, but um, <laughs> it, it's still done in a way that feels very much to as a part of this game, and, you know. And um, yeah, I just yeah, I think it's a really good example of what you can deviate from what people think that sort of VHS style horror game it can be. You know, and yeah, I I think it is one of those things where I'm glad that it is something that isn't just like, oh, well, you know, pay what you want. And I understand why many games do that because I think that's, you know, a good model for experimental small things. But so much work's been put into it and so much you know, sheen is there that it justifies having a price tag, you know, and, and would justify having a price tag more than this without a shadow of a doubt. So yeah, a very good one. I'm also a sucker for a unique location. And, uh, I think, you know, we play so many games like this. It's like, I can only go through so many haunted houses or abandoned stores or, you know, abandoned uh, department buildings. So, you know, getting to run around an abandoned post office and have that be tied in somehow to just the world building, uh, I was really appreciative of. And I think definitely need to ha- uh, have more games that have just weird settings. Uh, it's fun to see like the crazy kind of stories people can tell in the places that you least expect them to. So, you know, that gets a bonus point in my column, but I'm glad that this one stuck with you uh, as much as it did for me. But 
Let's uh, chat your sixth pick. So my sixth pick, and I don't think you'll have this, uh, is Fox Dog Studios Ghost in the Washing Machine. I do not. Yeah, um, I mean, this is very much a personal like affection I have for this. This was the first one we did that I actually wrote about afterwards. I think it was actually the first article I wrote for Dread XP was about this. So, um, so it holds a special place in my heart. Uh, Fox Dog Studios is like a you know small comedy, small time comedy duo. You know they do stuff outside of games, and you know, but um, they've done a couple of things in games. I mean they followed this up with like this weird Costa Coffee simulator, like a, a you know a gas station where you you know that it becomes sentient and comes after you. It's short and very and just daft, but it's fun. I loved it. I'm gonna have to add yes, that to my I list. I think it's called Cooster <laughs> or something, but um. Yeah, but Ghost in the Washing Machine, you know, was the first of these games really that just excited me in a specific way where it was, you know, the thing I talk about so, so often you know, oh, on this podcast about this whole 2am watching TV and what the fuck is this sort of feel, you know, when you get the weird shit, the experimental things that wouldn't normally, that wouldn't dare be allowed on television in the daytime when you know, the people who would clutch pearls are going to be choking on them if they saw such a thing. You know, not because they're offensive, but just because they don't make sense in a very sort of safe, comfortable televisual sense. And this is that, you know, this is that as a game. You are a washing machine maintenance engineer who goes around, you know, literally, he's old, doesn't really want to know about it. He's grumbling for it. Gets given this job to do, you know, to go and repair some machines. Batteries on his repair machine fuck up. So he thinks, oh, good. I'll have the rest of the day off and like that. But then, you know, at this point, it's been this very much this PS1 graphics style thing where, you know, like I said, that very basic version of that where everything is stretched and weird and, you know, the, the, the appeal of that. But then it cuts to an FMV cutscene of an actual person talking to you, which is one half of Fox Dog Studio, uh, Studios doing this. And, you know, he basically just basically says, you know, oh, you can't get away. No, 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 no way you're getting away early. And then gives you these magic batteries, essentially, to sort of continue your job. And then basically oversees every washing machine you repair with the, on the screen of this washing machine <laughs> repair machine. You know, it like comes up with a little image, little sound bites that repeat themselves. Like, and, you know, the condescending middle, ma- middle management type that I'm sure everyone is familiar with in any, any <laughs> job like that, per, you know, portrayed perfectly in that regard. And then it just gets odder. You know, the washing machines just get larger and in weirder places and culminates in this wall of washing machines you're attacking and having to do like these, button combos in you know the timed this whole QTE thing of like to get through it all and then you do it all you know in the idea of just like I just want to get out of here and just get home like that and get a pint or a pie and a pie sort of thing which is what's been basically promised to you if you just get on with the job and of course you know it's fucking late and you didn't get that pint and a pie and it just yeah I, I love that little barb at the end of it and it's just so weird you know, the, the minute someone walks in, you know, an actual real life person walks into this game and it, it just becomes this demented thing. Uh, and I just absolutely adored every damn second of it. You know, it's 
probably the game I played the most out of any Horror Whites game. Yeah, you know, I played it. You know, I played it for this. I played it in the first time. I played it for writing about it, and I played it once just to, to show my son the weirdness of it. So you know, I to play that four times. You know, it's a short experience for a few minutes. But God, I, yeah, absolutely adored it. You know, it, it really did just. Um, yeah, it, it did a great work. Yeah, you know, this was one that I think has stuck with me. Uh, far longer than I think it would, you know, as somebody that only played it the one time. Um, it's a game, though, that I think, fe- you know, it's evident from the outset that this is made by people that not only have a great sense of humor, but they know how to translate their humor to a medium other than, you know, telling somebody a joke or doing stand up or something like that. And there's so many games that try to do things similarly yeah. in the sense of like, oh, if we get really, really weird with this, it'll be funny. Yeah. Which is not always the case, right? I think, you know, comedy is one of the hardest things you can do in any medium. And the fact that they were able to take this insane concept that is ridiculous, but make it funny because of some of the things that you mentioned, which is when, you know, you've got the middle management that's yeah. promising you something that at the end of the day is like the bare minimum of what a reward should be. And the fact that you don't even get it at the very end of, you know, doing this, uh, <laughs> this ghostly battle that you've been doing periodically, like that is, such a great example of blending humor with, you know, gameplay in these things. Um, and I even got a laugh out of just the fact that not only do the washing machines get bigger, but they also have, it almost kind of looks like what I would say, like a Japanese RPG where it's got yeah. like levels above it, the bigger it gets. Um, like just that in, at face value is hilarious to me. But yeah, this was a game that um, is a really great balance of, you know, simplistic gameplay but gameplay that fuels the humor and at the same time it's reflective of you know blue collar work that i think everybody can relate to on some level so yeah this was definitely one that uh i think some people might be like well this looks really really weird or this concept (laughs) is like too far out there but trust me as neil has uh said you know this is a game that i think finds if for what it is a perfect balance of you know gameplay and then humor that uh, you know complement one another in a way that is far more difficult than I think people give creatives that are able to pull it off the credit that they deserve for doing that. Um, and I think that this is really a great example of that. Mm. I think I always like to say that I, I'm the only person I, I have a stoner sense of humor whilst not being a stoner. Yeah, it's like as a <laughs> so, yeah, and this is the sort of thing where I, it, it just kind of taps into that. I think. You know, it's just surreal. But then maybe that's because, you know, stone logic would suggest you'd be up at stupid o'clock in the morning watching this kind of thing. You know, and so, and I just did that naturally <laughs> without anything. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's just the connecting point there. So yeah, if you're a stoner, maybe you'll love it. There you go. So <laughs> it definitely has a sort of adult swim sensibility yeah. to it. Yeah. I, it, this is it. And I think, um, in terms of UK sort of thing that, you know, if anyone's of a certain age, there were plenty of things in the early 2000s that were on late at night that would kind of get this idea, you know, as well. So yeah, it just has, yeah, those two things are very much connected. I think, you know, adult swim and that all things that you, you know, used to be on late at night and especially here being made like that. Yeah. It, it's nice to have games that sort of connect with that and probably no surprise, you know, that we are getting games that reflect that, you know, because of a certain generation that grew up with that and then that feeds into the humor, you know, so 
Brilliant. So, number six for you. My number six was Drive Time Radio. Was this on your list? <laughs> it's not on my list. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when we cover, what, almost 40 yeah. games for Horror Bites over the years? Yeah, year? I mean, and uh, we've got... Yeah, you know, six games in overall, and not not a single one the same. So that's that's good. <laughs> I'm sure that'll change shortly. Sure. But uh, Drive Time Radio was from developer Birthday Boy, and this was give or take a 20 minute experience. Uh, the player plays tonight's lucky contestant as you call into a radio show for a chance to win VIP tickets to a Beach of Palooza Spring Break Beach Blowout. Oh my goodness, that's a mouthful <laughs> and a half. Uh, but it the game takes place in the cab of the player's truck where they're doing this late night drive and you know they're answering these questions on their smartphone basically while these you have these two very comical uh, DJs that are kind of just like have this witty banter back and forth, taking the piss out of one mm. another, taking the piss out of listeners. And then you start answering these questions that, you know, begin very simplistic, very rooted in some semblance of reality. And the questions get stranger and stranger and stranger. And the way in which the questions begin to evolve is reflected in the world in a way, in the sense of like your perception of reality begins to change the more apparent, you know, yeah. the questions uh, become a little more otherworldly. Um, you know, fantastic timing that we're building off of your last pick because this was another example I found of people that really understand humor yeah. and not only, you know, is helped by the fact that it's got good voice work, it's really, really well written. It, you know, from a gameplay standpoint, it evolves in the way that, you know, you're driving this car and you have to answer these questions. There are then, you know, things that happen during the uh, the pursuit of your drive down the seemingly never-ending highway that you have to then avoid while answering questions. Um, but overall, it's really about that banter between the DJs. And, you know, it fuels this, you know, 15, 20-minute experience in a way that, uh, you know, I, this is the one that I probably played the most just because I wanted to show friends that, you know, aren't necessarily the biggest horror fans, but they have a similar sense of humor to me. Yeah. So it was like, oh, I'll throw this on for a laugh in between whatever we're watching on a given night or something. Um, and I showed it to like two groups of friends and they had just as much fun with it as I did. Uh, yeah. And this was, I think this was one of my games of the year so far for our episode that we did at the halfway point yeah. of the year. And yeah, this one is really, really stuck with me. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, understandable. I mean, this is one of the many that didn't quite make the cut, you know, in my <laughs> extended list. Um, which I made even longer, having decided just before this episode that we, we should probably follow the format of eight. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> like, but yeah, uh, it just makes a very simple situation into something very smart. You know, it's, um, you, you've got to really admire how refined these things can be. And yeah, yeah. just the idea is like, well, you're driving along and you've got to do something. Okay. What you got to do? And then it's like, well, you answering a quiz. Okay. What else is happening? Well, you know, shit's happening out on the road that maybe you have to avoid it occasionally. Simple on paper, but then join all those things together and, you know, make, you know, the script of it work and the voice work be great is, you know, in itself tough. Yeah. So, you know, it's amazing yeah. that it's done so well. And it's just out there in the best way where it does just feel like it just glides from normality into a surreal effortlessly. You know, it really does just take it somewhere 
without you even realizing it, you know, and that, that is the best kind of surreal horror that you can have. You know, it's not about being scary. It's about being taken out of normality without even realizing it, you know, with no real cues beyond, oh shit, something's slightly off now. You know, like that, you know, absurdism, I suppose, is probably the best thing it would be. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when we talk about a level of polish that a horror bite has, it's never coming from the place of like trying to humor these devs or something like that, where it's like, oh, look how well this turned out. You know, you having limited time mm. and budget or constraints of these things. Like, no, in a short amount of time, they're able to convey this concept in a way that, you know, sometimes you run into full fledged games that don't have as quality of pacing. Granted, they're bigger experiences, but when you look at like, some scene to scene or level to level transitions, whether it's introducing new mechanics, whether it is having this moment that is representative of like the gradual pacing of the horror in a game. A lot of these horror bites that we've been covering are things that are able to do that in a short amount of time, but it's able to combine so many different elements and have them all, you know, flow together in a way that doesn't show a lot of kind of like stutter stepping. Sometimes they really know how to get to the core of what this brief experience is, but it does so in a way that feels gradual, no matter how long it is. Um, and I think that again, you know, with something like this, you talk about the horror of it. It's just as you detailed, right? I think that it does sneak up on you the fact that, Oh yeah, this is horror related. And then as soon as you kind of have that, reminder of something minor that happens yeah. then it hits you in the face of just you know what is basically been building to the entire time um, and i found that this was an example of that that took storytelling it took not only the you know voiceover production quality of it but also applied the gameplay mechanic to it that really was very seamless and has a fantastic payoff um, and makes for an experience that i hope lots of people check out amongst you know Everything else we're covering. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, while I can't claim to know, you know, the relationships between the people working in the game, I think you can tell sometimes when you have a sort of intermediate sort of group of people who who are friends, you know, and it becomes a lot more likely now, you know, where, you, know, where you can be doing, you could be a writer, you could be doing a podcast you could be acting you could be animating or whatever and you could be a good game developer and you can find yourself in two or three different roles you know over time and therefore as a result find yourself in a group that hey we can make a game together and somehow this kind of feels like that way it's like they just had the right people for the right thing at the right time and um i like that because you see that in so many forms in terms of like all the you know the independent television shows and then you see yeah you know, it, it's nice to see that people getting that you know in, in games as well yeah absolutely um but i think before we move on to your number five pick we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we'll run through rest of our uh lists and we are back from our break. And Neil, let's dive right into your fifth pick. My fifth pick is Signal Flows, The River Runs Through Us. That was on my list. It is on your list. Oh, yep. so we'll wait on that. So we, we go back to you then uh, and pick your number five. 
Yeah, so my number five was 10 Dead Doves. Is this on your <laughs> list? <laughs> it finally happened. It finally happened. See, the second half of the show is the chaotic thing that we never expected. <laughs> so we will go to your fourth my pick. My fourth pick is Our Lady of Sorrow. This was not on the list? There we go. It's like it, the, the curse was quickly broken. <laughs> and I'm not even slightly prepared because obviously I was there with the page <laughs> for the wrong thing. Um, I will get there in a second. Ad lib for me while I find that. But I'll say like this one was a standout, I would say, amongst many of the sort of VHS style first person experiences that we played. Not only was it you know, utilizing that VHS aesthetic in a way that felt unique, but also mm -hmm. what it did in a way that didn't feel as artificial, perhaps, as some of the other VHS first-person uh, style games that we played, yeah. was that it really ties the location into the story in a way that's unique, but also the fact that it gives you this location that has this history to it that doesn't just feel along the generic lines of like, oh, this is a haunted building or this is an abandoned building, that type of thing. So yes. why don't you uh, tell the viewers why this made your list and why it was such a standout for yes, the year? Thank you for that. Uh, that was a <laughs> good ad-libbing. Um, so yeah, this is a found footage horror game set in an old abbey in Ireland. So, you know, it's ticking a lot of boxes for me straight away. You know, Irish heritage, found footage. These are straight away things I love and religion. Um, the, the thing that fascinates and abhors me in equal measure. So, <laughs> it's, um, so yeah, you, you basically, it, you, you are viewing the archives of this, but you're also controlling what's going on in it. Um, again, one of those where the production values are really high, you know, for what it is, you know, this sort of PSX style horror, but not, you know, it's slightly above that. And yeah. It, it would be very easy to be tired of the whole, oh, this has got video camera shit on it. You know, like, oh, here's the scuddy footage. Here's the date and the time and whatever in the corner and a little record sign. But this makes sense in so many ways. You know, the, the idea that it's, you know, there's a mystery behind this abbey and they're investigating it and looking into it and sort of witnessing the things as they happen. Um, the problematic part is trying to not spoil much because, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. initial mood of it and the atmosphere is really good. You know, it really just sort of has this dread feel, you know, all throughout it. You know, I think the, the, the low res, low poly graphics really do help that, you know, that they have this mood that, yeah, I think we were talking about it with Resident Evil 2 when, um, I was saying, you know, one of the things I like about the original Resident Evil 2 is the, it has something in its, you know, you know, limitations that makes it feel nastier and leaves more to the imagination in a way that you can't quite replicate when you just have all the detail. Yeah. And so, yeah, this really did that so well. And, you know, it riffs on a few things, of course, but. I think it's one of those where I really felt the story behind it was unique. You know, it's based on a real story as far as I've seen. And it's fascinating to me, you know, as those kind of stories go. And just the journey you go on in this, you know, where it's, you know, and where you end up. And again, I'm trying to be as vague as possible. 
it's just so well presented. And, it, and, you know, from beginning to end, it's, you know, presented as this was found, blah, blah, blah. You know, you had the warnings and the stuff like that, that we found this footage in that sort of Cloverfield vein of, you know, uh, this is something that's been dug up and we're looking into it sort of thing. And, you know, while Cloverfield is a bone of contention for me in terms of found footage, I think there are aspects like that that make me enjoy it. You know, so this just does the right thing throughout. You know, it really does just sort of get what it's supposed to be doing. And I, it was just something that felt really different within this you know, niche that is well explored, you know, at this point. This the way that this handles the scares I found to be the best example of found footage mm. in that it doesn't try to rush to the scary factors of this game, right? It lets the environment do a lot of the heavy lifting for half of the experience before, you know, things become a little more overtly terrifying mm. or overtly strange. Um and those are my favorite kind of like haunting witchy type stories, yeah. right? Is that you get to a certain point in the experience when you are faced with something that's irrefutable. And that makes you think about things that happened earlier in it that become creepier and scarier. The more that you think about them with the new context of you uncovering more about the location, the myth, the players that are, uh, you know, in these worlds. And this one did a really great job, not only of pacing it, but it paces the haunting nature of my favorite haunting stories in a way that, it lets the environment be the true star. And then it that you know foundation really does heighten the scares that pop up in the back half of the game that, you know, it's if I was to say what they were, it's not something that you haven't seen in previous hmm. types of experiences, but it's the way in which there's the buildup and the legwork to getting there that make them more unnerving yes. and you knowing the significance behind them. The significance is what makes the most mundane types of scares that much more terrifying and in your face. And this is a great example of that. And I think it's a, uh, a strong contender for not only, you know, found footage horror games that we played this year for horror bites, but it's one that has instantly put that dev on my radar. Yeah. Again, another one that I'm like, anything that they make next sight and scene, I'm just going to dive right into it because they showed a fundamental understanding of storytelling first and foremost, which is more important to me then it is just like, see how many jump scares you yeah. can fit into this 10 to 15 minute slice of uh, horror. But yeah, this was, again, I could probably have this caveat for everything that we talk <laughs> about today. If we were doing an honorable mentions for horror bites, it would certainly be one of those. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was a great pick. Yeah, it, it just magical. I think it's the best way to put it. It just um, got it. Uh, that's the best way I can put it. <laughs> So, uh, we go to your number four. My number four is Acrophile. Is this on it your list? isn't on my list. Oh, all right. So, Acrophile was from developer While Game is False. And this was a point-and-click adventure that had a Game Boy-era aesthetic. Mm. And we talked about this when Herc, uh, who runs at Horror Visuals, was on uh, for our October episode of Horror Bites. So, definitely go back Give that episode a listen. Herc had a lot of great uh, great picks for the month. But Acrophile was one that jumped out to me based on not only the aesthetic and it looking very different, but also it really did utilize the limitations of that aesthetic in a way that made not only the environment more engrossing, but also the storytelling engrossing in a way that was very, very subtle 
And yet, kind of like what I was saying about the previous pick, it's something that the longer you're in the world, the more that you uncover, it becomes more terrifying. Mm -hmm. And this one puts the player in the shoes of one of two researchers that are making contact with a tribe that's been living in seclusion on a a mostly unapproachable island. When has that ever gone wrong? (laughs) Um, But through, you know, excavating the island, researching the people that live there, you know, some horror uh, definitely occurs in the back half of that. But I will say that it's a great example of, you know, utilizing a certain era's aesthetic to heighten what is on paper, like kind of a simplistic premise. But it really does utilize the sense of, you know, something is wrong, but it doesn't spell it out too early on. Um, There's a certain visual cue, which anybody that plays more than 30 seconds of this will pick up on when you interact with the natives. That's very uncomfortable and is not explained until the very end of the game, which is why I think Acrophile has such a great payoff that kind of bleeds into a couple other subgenres that I know both you and I are massive fans of. And, you know, Herc even said as much uh, for him of why this really, you know, resonated with him as much as it did with us. Um, And for anybody that maybe is looking for something that looks a little more polished or modern, I would say give that it's a short experience like anything. It's like 10 minutes long or something, but you know, don't be frustrated by the fact that it has that game boy aesthetic. It has the limitations of such really interact with the environments that you're presented with. um, Cause there's a little more depth there perhaps than uh, you might assume just based on how it looks. But yeah, Acrophile was one that stood out to me in a big way. And again, it's a developer that I can't wait to see what they do next, perhaps deliver an experience that doesn't have as many constraints and seeing what they could do with that from a storytelling perspective, I think would be really fantastic to see. But uh, how about you? What did you think of Acrophile? Well, you know, we picked a lot of, you know, I picked especially a lot of games that were um, very text-based, you know, during our, our time this year on Horrorbytes. Um, because they were really good at sort of marrying an image to the words, you know, and making them count. And this is kind of like the evolution of that slightly, where there is a bit more of a point and click nature to what you're doing, but it's limited. And, but it is still essentially a text adventure. And the imagery here, as simple as it is, you know, that Game Boy aesthetic does a great job sort of selling you on the unknown you know what i was just saying before about you know limitations of technology sort of filling in the blanks of imagination you know that is here in acrophile you know you you have that you you have this uneasiness this dread nature of the things you can't quite make out the things you can't quite see and you know the, the realization of what is sort of happening now you know i think you know, not beyond even just this podcast, you know, when we talked on your podcast, Daily Horror Habit, about In the Earth, you know, and I, I sort of got into, you know, how much I love that sort of kind of horror, you know, this sort of, you know, natural horror, you know, and um, what's the film you recommended me recently? It was a... Uh, significant that's other. It, yeah, yeah, which also has a lot of that, you know, and, you know, I eat that stuff up. I really do. So having a game that, kind of gets into that sort of you know obscure ambiguous dread mood of uh nature and where you can take horror with that i i love it i really do i i I think it i've pointed out before that um you know the harrowing adam knight 
novel, The Fungus, has always been like a key reason why I'm so into the idea of nature being the facet for horror. You know, I, I just think it works so well to have it, you know, having the thing that we take for granted work against us and, you know, because we, we can't be bothered to understand it as well as we should. And, and, you know, it's just endlessly fascinating to me. So, you know, games like Acrophile really just do it for me in that regard because they just have that, you know, it's so simple, you know, so streamlined. And yet in that you have this very real sense of dread, you know, which is important. I think if you're not going to, you know, if you're not going to go for scary horror, I think dread is the next best thing you can do. You know, I think because it's also hard to achieve. And I think it's a smarter thing to achieve in horror. You know, it's easy to scare someone if they're scared by horror. You know, by jump scares and things like that. But if they're not, you know, it's almost confusing to be given this unpleasant feeling that you can't quite pin down, you know. And I think for people who you know, are veterans of horror, you know, and have watched enough stuff where you, you are numb to jump scares, you are numb to gore and blood and whatever, and it's nice to be made to feel something that isn't isn't quantifiable you know, in a normal way. So yeah, this is a game that really just gets that and really just understands what you need to do if you're not just going for jump scares and the usual blood and gore. You need to have a sensation of unease. And, you know, that's why I love stuff like In the Earth, you know, and Significant Other, because they are films that get that with nature. And this is very much that, you know, in a game. More in the earth than significant other, which has a goofiness to it. But, you know, this, this is, you know, very much a Ben Wheatley kind of game, if I would say. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that's a perfect comparison. And, you know, as I said with the last game that we chatted about, right? I think that it's an example of somebody that understands how mm. to tell a story first and foremost. Doesn't try to rush immediately to the creepy in your face bits, but rather spends a good amount of time building that sense of unease and dread that's a majority of the experience, which then kind of acts as the foundation that heightens that, you know, big reveal at the end of this, which I think is really terrific. Um, and, you know, more so, it makes you think about the entire game leading up to this big reveal and this big scare at the end, which then immediately makes me go back and want to replay something like Acrophile, which is exactly what I did. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a standout for the year for me. But uh, let's dive into your next pick. Well, my next pick is your number five pick, which is uh, Ten Dead Ducks, which, uh, which is a demo, we might add, but um, is very much worthy of inclusion for what it does. So... Um, By Duanex Studios. Yes. So, yeah, so we'll try and sort of collaborate on this. <laughs> that, that was great collaboration. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, Ten Dead Doves is... A fixed perspective horror game, you know, narrative heavy, um, and it is set in the heart of Appalachia. So there are strange noises, you know, things going on in the woods. You are backpacking with your mate out there. But before you even get to that, there's this real, you know, black and white, um, dream sequence where you are 
walking along down some stairs meeting some weird guy and then you go into the sort of meat of what the story is and you know which is just you and your mate backpacking and it just you know in the brief time we get with this game you know before it really gets into what the game will eventually be it provides enough oddball you know stuff that you are instantly like oh wow okay there's something about this now we talk about how survival horror games of this ilk can be sort of you know, derivative of what has come before here this genuinely has a personality of its own already you know in the small portion we have played of this is something that instantly i fell in love with it you know the fact that it's a demo and we're including it here because you know we we cover demos plenty you know on horror bites but when making this list i was like thinking if stuff's a demo do i really want to include it because you know the full game could be too long or maybe i i don't know what the quality of that game would be but such is the impact of tender doves to me that i just couldn't leave it out of this list you know i you know and i feel no guilt for that you know in terms of the games that didn't didn't make it because it just has something about it that I, you know i've talked so often already in this episode about writing about stuff afterwards when we've done horror bites this was the one where i was like i have to you know, like before it was like you know it was nice to find a game i could write about you know after we've done an episode on one of those and here it was like I have to, I have to let people know about this game because god damn it just, it just has this stupid sense of humor that is very personal, you know, and, you know, small team doing what they are. And it just does something properly demented without going all out there. You know, it still feels very survival horror. It taps into the cheese of classic survival horror in a lot of ways, I think. And I, again, I've, I've just pointed out the fact that I love stuff, you know, in forests and stuff like that and in nature. And this has a bit of that already, you know, so it was already onto a winner in that regard. But yeah, it's just a sense of humor that's on show here. You know, it's not for everyone, I guarantee, but for me, it's the perfect sort of sense of humor. Well, to take it back to when we were talking about Drive Time Radio, right? I think that this game is indicative of a duo or mm. a team, small team that really, you know, whether or not they end up actually being in real life, they feel like they are friends that are coming together and making something because they are able to have that personable, cheesy humor that, you know, you can describe it as being dumb or cheesy, but at the end of the day, it's more than that just because of the personality that comes through from not only the people that are behind the writing and the humor, but also the characters themselves, right? I think that there is a big difference between dumb, cheesy humor and then dumb and cheesy humor that feels like it's almost like a vernacular that you're learning about between two people or a group of people. And I would say for this game, it's the latter, right? Mm. It's people that understand each other's sensibilities, but at the same time, like it feels like a friendship right from the gate. Um, and to comment briefly on something you mentioned about like demos and our covering them, I think uh, this is my thoughts on it, right? I think with demos over 
the last decade or two decades, the art of the demo has largely been lost, I think, when you think about mainstream games. For me, whenever I play a brief demo, when I do of like a big game, it kind of just feels like a random slice that is not always indicative of what a final product might yeah. be, whether it be establishing, you know, the story, the the characters, the mechanics, why this is unique. And with something like 10 Dead Doves, it's so perfectly and almost seems effortlessly introduces not only the supernatural element that the demo doesn't really dabble in a whole lot, but it gives you enough of it that you know it's going to be a staple of the experience. But then it very quickly moves into the player or the character that you're going to be playing as for a majority of the experience and allows you a glimpse into their world, their relationships with others. It establishes the gameplay in a way that feels significant. And it has that build up to a big moment that doesn't have the payoff, but it gives you enough that it makes you want more, which, you know, is obviously the intention of every single demo. And yet I find when I play demos these days, it's about 50-50 whether or not yeah. I've been made to care enough about what I just played to want to, you know, not only continue playing in the moment, but six months, a year, two years down the line, even bother following up with a product. Yeah. So, you know, we, of course, raved about uh, 10 Dead Doves in a previous episode. We're talking about it here, but this really is one that I think takes that classical survival horror feel to it, has the polish, but more importantly, it establishes unique characters, a unique world, and has really personable humor yeah. that I think is a strong indicator that this is one that hopefully will be on everybody's uh, radar. Yeah, and you know, between the pair of us on, on the show, you know, of the three reviews for that demo, two of them are ours. So, you know, it's like, so, oh, there you go. <laughs> you know, my Drone XP article and the, the Bloody Disgusting article that you wrote uh, to accompany our episode of that uh, very thing. So, yeah, there you go. That just shows how much we, we uh, like this game, you know, <laughs> it, uh, as it is. Uh, I really cannot wait to play the whole thing uh, in 2023. Uh, I'm sure when we do our most wanted list, that will be coming up in the new year. So, where are we at now? Um, so that's you, number three. Yeah, my number three was Go Fly a Kite, which I know is 1,000% on your it list. It is, yes. So we are, we are definitely <laughs> getting into that territory at this point. So, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's go to your next pick then. So my next pick is You Will Not Remain. That is not. Oh, it's list. not on your list. Okay, it's not on my that list. That actually did surprise me. I, I must say. Um, so that is bedtime phobias. Um, this is one of the games that was on Steam rather than Itch.io. Um, and I think it was another one that I picked. It, it too. was indeed <laughs> one that you picked, and has and is reviewed very positively. I think just under two thousand reviews. And the idea is you stay in your apartment as the city around you is falling to some kind of eldritch abomination and that's the basics of it and the color scheme of this is very basic you know it's black white and purple and that is it really um you do your daily routine of like you know have a cup of coffee you know water the plant eventually you know other things as well um you you feed a dog whatever you go along the corridors of this apartment building knocking on doors and things like that and you know it's so so simple you know but 
something about it just really ends up being so magical in its story. And I think the storytelling is so important with this game. Um, it's, you know, we've plenty has come out of the COVID times, if you will. Yeah. And while I don't think this necessarily began in the COVID times, you know, this game you know, came out at the very beginning of this year. So it's possible, but I think it's not the entirety of what this is. This is more about, you know, the personal um, anxieties and, and mental health issues that the person had for this game. But it, it's so well done. You know, it really does just sort of capture the idea of being isolated and alone in a world that is going to shit. And without it being the traditional sort of sense, you know, if you were to do this story normally, it is about zombies or something, you know, and you are fighting them off. And, you know, we've seen plenty of those. But here, it's, you know, the threat outside is there, but it's never really knocking down your door. It's just a case of like, it's not, you're not staying in your home just because of that. You're staying in your home because you are, you know, you have your own issues and they are keeping you away from everything anyway. And that's probably what saved you to this point is you you are a recluse as a result of them. And, you know, it's the weirdly accepting nature of, you know, finding, you know, a pet outside of this, you know, that, that isn't quite normal clearly. And yet, you know, because it's not human, you know, our character is very much willing to sort of accept this friendship of a weird pet, this dog that isn't quite a dog. And, you know, rather than have to ever deal with any human that might be left. And there's so many connotations to what's going on that it could be, you know, maybe everyone's dead or maybe it's just that this person is very much uncomfortable with the idea of ever trying to find out, you know, and that it's very telling that the first, you know, living being they accept is a dog, you know, that isn't even a real dog, it seems. And, yeah, just having the background of this cosmic entity, you know, there and ruling over everything and that not being the real problem it's just like, it's almost like a piece of what's going on, but also despair. The idea of what, you know, life will end as it stands. It's just, it's something you have to play. You know, it's, this is a Steam game that is completely free. You know, it's like, it's not an itch.io, so there's not the usual sort of like recommended pay things, but so I will say this, you should play this because of what it is, you know, and what it does for those things. And I, th- it's just just smart little game, and uh, you know it does so much with so little, you know, in terms of time, in terms of uh, what it looks like, in terms of what it is, interaction wise, it's just yeah a superb bit of storytelling that is especially relevant now, you know, in this you know, when you sort of go back to those sort of COVID times of lockdowns and isolation. That if you were having those. It really does just get those and applies horror to it in a way that doesn't feel forced, you know? Yeah. You know, this also, you know, furthermore, made in 48 hours for a game jam, which is, I mean, pretty incredible considering how well put together the entire thing is. But, you know, I think that 
the mental health angle is, you know, and sometimes you can view a project as like, oh, it's going to tap into these buzzwords mm. or it's going to claim to have something to say about something that sometimes can end up feeling exploitative rather than actually exploring a topic in a way that feels meaningful. This is definitely an example of a game that not only understands the struggles that the character in the game is dealing with, but it uses the medium of horror in the way that we love, which is that horror acts as a vessel to explore subject matter, real world mm. subject matter that is still viewed in some circles as taboo or things people would like to gloss over. And this being the best example of that in that it's taking this real world thing and it's exploring it in a genuine way. But then it's using, you know, the horror uh, eldritch elements to, you know, heighten that feeling for people that perhaps some of the things that this game talks about is not as palpable, but, you know, the horror elements make it a little more real for them. Mm. Um, and I found that not only was the writing really spectacular, very personable, but it taps into that sort of mundane nature of life that we've talked about so many times in Horror Bites, right? But it does it in a way that really does kind of tap into everybody's real world experience, maybe not to the degrees in which the character is, but it's taking the that experience of life and, you know, having this uh, eldritch sort of threat that's looming, but as you said, never in your face. Yeah. Um, it really does make the player sort of contend with life on a day-to-day -day basis, but that eldritch, you know, threat that's ever looming, you know, it makes the experience of the person that's written this, you know, have that experience feel a little more palpable as if, you know, let's say this is what they feel like on a day-to-day -day basis, whether or not there's an eldritch monster yeah. out there or if there's a tentacle monster or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I think that not only was the writing stellar, but it does a good job of making the environment be representative of the character themselves to the degree that I would say it's a form of environmental storytelling, yeah. right? Just going around that apartment or going around, you know, the apartment complex and seeing how they interact with things and it being very, you know, I don't want to get too into the weeds with anything so I can <laughs> save the experience for the masses, but, um, you know, it feels like each interaction is representative of that character in their current mind state and in a mind state that, you know, is not, uh, just cropping up because of the threat that's outside, right? That's the threat is the reason that we're in this moment, but the way in which they behave and react is clearly evident of a long span of dealing with either mental health issues or certain things that are uh, troubling them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this was definitely an example, I think, of a very genuine uh, retelling of something that I would, you know, I don't think it's a stretch to say, the people behind it have either dealt with in some capacity um, and, you know, hopefully this was cath a cathartic 48 hours of creating that game, of putting those, you know, internal feelings into something that could be consumed by the masses um, and hopefully either help people that could relate to certain things that this character is dealing with or the devs are dealing with or, you know, just to expose people to what some people deal yeah. with, you know, on a daily, monthly, yearly basis. Yeah. But yeah. This was definitely one that uh, would have easily been at the top of my honorable mentions. But yeah, this was a great pick. Yeah, I mean, um, just to point out, the writing is by Gabriella Logren, who is uh, at Ella Logren on Twitter. And her work that is uh, making this what it is. You know, not, not to take away from anyone else there who are all listed on the Steam page, which we are getting linked to. But yeah, I just think that writing 
is such a huge part of why this resonates, you know. I think the other parts are all great in their own right, but this, you know, without that, it, 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 yeah, that's the heart of it. That, that is what makes it such a memorable experience. That's why it's so high on my list, you know. So, um, your number two. Yeah, my number two was the shopping list. Was this, I, this was on I yours? I just cut it. Yeah, oh. just cut it um, when I remembered that Tender Doves was a thing. Because uh, <laughs> uh, we um, obviously pushed that in a bunch of stuff when we did the uh, that, that whole Haunted PS1 demo. Uh, so yeah, this is the last one that will um, be <laughs> just, yeah, nobody else has. So um, go for it. Yeah, so the shopping list was from developer Jordy Boy, and this was a psychological mystery that has the player exploring a new town that is looking to start, you know, a new beginning. Uh, but upon arriving and interacting with the unsettling and uh, eccentric locals, uh, this setting in particular uh, may have been an oversight to start a new life as the player uncovers the town's mystery as well as their own secretive past. Uh, we've talked extensively about this one yeah. uh, being a really fantastic example of taking again that PSX first person style that we've you know come to know and love but it tells a story that is incredibly personable that you know is indicative of real world experiences of the developer bleeding into their art form and exploring those elements in the subject matter in a way that feels cathartic to ever I would say to anybody that is able to dive into this you can get the sense that this is coming from a very personable place at the same time it's indicative of some of our favorite experiences in that it has a great deal of humor in it dark humor it also does a great job again of blending the mundane nature of going to the store and buying and having to go to three different shops and then, you know, of course, there's the uh, the stranger in a strange land element to it where you get to explore this eccentric cast of uh, rogues gallery <laughs> of uh, locals and getting to, you know, solve a few puzzles along the way, get to haggle over milk prices on one of your first interactions. Um, but then the game really does take a turn of, you know, having this looming threat that periodically makes itself known and the way in which that grows is really fantastic. And this was... I believe one of the more substantial um, yeah. time investments of anything we covered, I think it's about 40 minutes, um, which allows this game to explore a lot of its subject matter in a meaningful way. But at the same time, it feels like a tech demo of Jordy Boy's development skills, right? Yeah. I think that there's a lot of different examples of, or several rather examples of puzzles or features in it that, you know, on paper, again, if I was to list them, they would sound pretty standard. But I think as a solo effort, which I'm pretty sure this was, um, it shows not only a great swath of features, but also, you know, getting to have multiple facets to what at the end of the day begins to feel like a full-fledged experience that at the end of the day is only 45 minutes, which is, you know, pretty good in terms of as far as horror bites go. Um, but I I found that the shopping list does a good job of establishing setting, story, gameplay, you know, agency in a way that sometimes with these types of PSX first person experiences, they might excel at one mm. or two. This one it excels at a handful of uh, different qualities that really made it a standout. And, you know, we played another Geordie Boy game this year that perhaps was not as favorably received as the shopping list was, but I think that it shows a continuation of being able to tell bite-sized stories yeah. 
that are able to excel in more ways than one that make Jordy Boy uh, a standout, I think, of like devs that we've returned to in such a short period of time um, that I think is making that a developer that we are going to be following for a very long time. The shopping list is a fantastic starting point. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that for me, both these games were so close. So, so, so close. You know, I know so close is nothing in a list of 40 to 50 games, but they, they really were because both games have something about them, you know, and this was the surprise, you know, obviously because it was the first game we came across, but like Broken Fruit, you know, while I don't like it as much overall as this game, I really liked you know, the, the weird things it did, like the, the sort of advert it had early on that was just fucking demented where he, you know, Geordie Boy himself was there, you know, in, in that advert doing that, that shit. That was just amazing. You know, if, if you play anything of Broken Through, play that first bit and witness that advert. It's again, a perfect example of that thing. I really like that sort of 2am. What the fuck is this on TV humor? And it's there. And yeah, that's not really the thing about the shopping list. You know, that, that isn't, why I found it to be interesting. Um, I just think it told a story really well and surprised because it's not gender specific as a story, you know, and it then sort of reveals itself as to what that is. And it doesn't change anything in a way, but, but it's also kind of, like, Oh, okay. You know, you, you make a natural assumption. Maybe that's just because, you know, as a man, you know, I'm going to make an assumption that it's a male story. And yeah, it's the way things go in that, you know, where things just get slightly more surreal as things go along and uh, it is majestic and it's really well paced, really well structured. And I, I'm so impressed with the confidence of someone who is very young, by the same to it as well. You know, and, and already doing this kind of work, I, as much as I wouldn't wish it upon them to end up working for a big company, yeah, I, I can easily see it happening, you know, because, you know, the talent is there, you know, and, um, I, I kind of, but, you know, selfishly, I kind of hope that, that they are going to just make this kind of stuff for as long as they can and, and get popular off that because it, it would be fully deserved. But, you know, I, I would not hold it against them if they ended up working for a big company based on the stuff they've done already because they they deserve to make money off their talent. Yeah, it is phenomenal talent. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, well, yeah, I think once, you know, the way that we do Horror Bites typically is that it's like just based off of a thumbnail, you pick it, right? Yeah. You don't do a great deal of research into it. And the shopping list was one of those games that the more that you looked into it after you played it, it became more and more impressive. Mm. And that's why, you know, I've said for this, for one or two other picks, it's like if you said the feature, if you describe the features that it has out loud, a majority of people might be like, well, yeah, okay, that's like pretty stock standard. But when you take into a fact, into account, you know, who is developing this, the size of the teams, the short amount of time, the constraints and whatnot that go along with horror bites, typically, it becomes more and more impressive to the degree that you're like, oh, this is somebody that's naturally going to go on to make 
what most people would con- consider to be like full-fledged games or something like that. And there's, you know, big air quotes around that. But it's going to be somebody that is, I would assume, make leaps and strides in the industry the older they get if they stick with it, right? I think that, you know, this is a staggering uh, – this was either a first or second effort from Jordy um, Bryant. I think it was second. I think it was a yeah. second. But, uh, yeah, I mean – a fantastic entry. And like I said, we talked about their follow-up broken through, which for me wasn't as uh, as memorable as the shopping list and yet tried something new, that dedication to storytelling and, you know, more versatile storytelling of a variety of yeah. stories in one experience and tying a unique experience to each of those, whether or not it hit me the same way as this did. I think that, you know, it's a continued effort of not only having a variety of features, and, but this time a variety of storytelling that's incredibly uh, promising. And it's, a, again, a dev that we are going to be uh, keeping an eye on for the future. Absolutely. So we've got to the number twos of our list now. So mm-hmm. by contract agreement, we have to do a rundown of what we've said so far. <laughs> um, yep. Because, you know, what is any more thrilling than hearing the things you've already heard <laughs> in a countdown format? Just to remind you, despite the fact we've basically given away what our number ones are already, if yep. you hadn't listened already. Um, so <laughs> I will start and say my number eight was Clean Redville. My number eight was Maple County. My number seven was Perfect Vermin. Mine was Knight of the Scissors. My number six was Ghost in the Washing Machine. Mine was Drive Time Radio. My number five was The River Runs Through Us Part One. My number five was Ten Dead Doves. My number four was Our Lady of Sorrow. Mine was Acrophile. My number three was Dead Doves. Ten Dead Doves, in fact, sorry. My number three was Go Fly a Kite. (laughs) And my number two was You Will Not Remain. And my number two was The Shopping List. Okay. So we are on to our final furlong, which, yes, if you have assuaged at this point we may have given away <laughs> slightly but uh that that is the nature of not knowing what we are doing beforehand um but that's the excitement of it too you've heard about these games if you've listened to horror bites before if you haven't you're in for a treat because these are two fucking fantastic games in their own right one of them is a demo effectively and the other is a full-fledged game so I guess I am going first by law of uh, rule. And I am, of course, going to be mentioning <sighs> Go Fly a Kite by Digital, <laughs> Digital Tchotchkes. I If I got it wrong again, I'm sorry. I keep trying to remember what the right pronunciation is. Uh, I follow the guy on Twitter. I'm really fascinated by what he's doing in the meantime. But pff, just fantastic. I think... Our praise will uh, hopefully give us a, a reprieve yeah. from any backlash or mispronunciation, yeah, so, yeah, which we're please. both apologetic yeah, so of. Please, because yeah, I have gone on about this game so much this year, and it, I will say this now in minor spoiler announcements. It will probably feature in my top 10 horror games of the year anyway, overall. But Go Fly Kite is um, <laughs> so... So many things to say here. I think the main <laughs> thing to say is that it's a dystopian horror. You know, it, it sort of trading in on the PS1 style graphics thing, but using it to 
really sell the dystopian nature of this world. Yeah, you know, it's all the very brutalist architecture and very bleak worldview of what's going on. And you start this game in a chat room and go through a sequence of conversations that are very much rooted in what you would expect from a chat room in any given era. Um, and that instantly is like, okay, that's, that's smart. That's, you know, maybe easy to do because we've all seen how chat rooms could be. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, the journey goes from there where you leave that computer and see yourself and you are this fucking claymation dude with a tumor effectively coming out of your head. And that was one of the most surprising reveals I've ever seen any game ever. You know, like the fact that you you have this fairly realistic environment, blah, blah, blah. And then you get to that mirror and you see yourself and you, you look like you are a fucking Sesame Street off cut. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and it's amazing, and that's what the world is. All these sort of plasticine people, and I was staggered by that. You know, and in a way, I, you know, I could never get into as deep as I want to. I feel like that feels perfect for the storytelling that's going on here. You know, which is really satirical, which really. Really, really smart. I, I, I'm staggered by how smart this game is in terms of storytelling and funny. You know, yeah, it, it, smart, timely, and funny. Yeah, it, I mean, it, what a trio of uh, qualities! I mean, it, it just it is satire personified in terms of what games do. And yeah, just the interactions you have after this initial bout of online chat are all with people who had their own feelings about what's going on in the world which yeah the general feeling is the world is going to end you know in this place but so your opinion of that is generally when you think about that if the world was going to end you know today or tomorrow or even a week how would you feel about it what what would your opinion would you be like you know a great loving about everyone and just want to be friendly to everyone really just embrace your inner kindness or would you be a fucking selfish prick who who really just wants to just embrace what is important to you and this is a game that really gets the idea that maybe there's not really a right answer to that you know it's like you you are in the shoes of someone who is already dealing with their own personal trauma in terms of the main character has a cancerous tumour but at the same time, he has a cancerous tumor at a time where the world is going to fucking die anyways. Who, who, what does it matter? What does that make you compared to anyone else? The great equalizer in this story is that, you know, yes, you have a terminal illness, but then everyone technically has a terminal illness because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so suddenly it's like you are robbed of the, your own personal trauma. You know, that even if it hadn't been cancer, you know, it's like, even if you had other issues, it's like, they don't matter anymore because everyone effectively has a final issue who can't afford a way forward. You know, there's this 
whole angle on like uploading yourself onto into an online world and it's only really for the rich people you go to visit your doctor and find out they have basically done that already and have no fucking shits to give about helping you in your your, um, current issue and that's it you are just left with bleak despair that this world provides and the game really just handles it so well and just so expertly and so delicately that it just floored me. You know, I, it, it goes to show that it doesn't matter about budget or whatever. It, it, it's imagination, you know, and you know, how you can perceive the situation and how you, you see that going through, you know, and this is a, perfect example of that you know it, it really just emphasizes with the subject matter in a way that you know is uncaring but in the way that makes sense for this story you know it's like it just shows that sure you've got your problems but you know what's more scary than your own problems is the fact that no matter how personally devastating these things are to you you know 99.9% of the the population don't give a fucking shit about it, you know, and (laughs) that is despair making. Yeah. That is dystopia in its purest form is that that no matter what you do, no no matter how tragic your story is, no matter how many, you know, sure people might, if you're lucky, might retweet out your tragic story on YouTube and, or Twitter or whatever and like that and fucking get it out there and make, you get some sort of last wish or last help you are ultimately not cared about in the way that you would hope for yeah it's like and it kind of attacks the idea of like this personal feeling you know that you have as a person you know, the way you are well, like you don't you, in a way you know you're not important in the wide scheme of things you know but at the same time, you want to be. You want to be this someone who is important to enough people somehow beyond like the people that have to care for you. Maybe you know, like like your family, if your closest friends. Yeah. So I think that this game is a fantastic representation of like why you really can't judge media in general just based on the way it looks, right? Because I picked this game solely based on the thumbnail when we originally mm. covered it. Because I was like, oh. This is claymation. This is fucking weird looking. I'll, well, I'll pick this and we'll have a laugh about it. And yet it's so high on our list at the end of the year for Horror Bites because there's so much more than that. If anything, the absurdity of how it looks kind of fuels into this predicament, which is absurd from a surface glance, mm. right? The idea that, you know, while the world is about to end, you're hit with this horrific news of your own untimely demise from a tumor. And yet, the player is grappling with their own mortality when at the end of the day, it's like, it doesn't really matter. You're going to die anyways, right? And yeah. how everybody basically is going to have the same end date. And yet yours, because you're in their shoes, is initially viewed as being more traumatic because it's like, oh, this is something that you know is untimely and whatnot. And yet everybody has their own experiences, basically, no matter where they're at, everybody ends up at the same end date. And I was really, really impressed by the writing of this and how, you know, it's able to feel timely in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like there's a healthcare segment of this. 
that hits a little too hard, I might say, but it's fucking hilarious. There's a healthcare element to it. There's a societal element of how you view people and how people react to this news of the end of the world. And, you know, this game ended up being such a wonderful blending of so many different elements that it really does end up being this thing that you have to hold up at the end of the year and just say, like, again, talking about the variety of experiences and qualities that can be found in something that is a horror bite itself. And, you know, this being what it is, and, you know, some people might at face value kind of look at it as like, oh, yeah, this is like a funny claymation thing. And yet there are so many levels to it, so many levels of complexity. And, you know, for our money, and I'm confident in saying that given where it is on both of our lists, um, it is something that ends up being the best example of so many qualities of art direction that complements the storytelling, of storytelling that complements the art direction, the sense of humor that's in it, as I said earlier in the episode, and I'm sure when we initially covered this game, like humor is so difficult to get right in so many different mediums. The fact that this game is able to be somber, melancholic, hilarious, depressing, and it ends up with an ending, which we're of course not going to go into, but an ending that you feel as if this game could not end any other way than what is exactly presented because it is so fitting. Um, And I think that that in and of itself is the greatest compliment I could give anything that is only again, 10 to 15 minutes long um, and taps in and checks so many boxes of what we look for in horror bites of not just being entertaining, but of being thought provoking of, you know, having a unique aesthetic to it that at the end of the day, you could say is not the entirety of the experience, but if you were to describe it to somebody, it would be the second or third thing, at least that you mentioned. Um, And I think that, this is, you know, a fantastic example of a horror bite that I returned to an additional time that wasn't for coverage, but was just for my own yeah. enjoyment. And as you said, you know, he's got a uh, the developer has a game that's hopefully soon, but we're not quite sure. But on the horizon, their next project, which you can wishlist on Steam. Um, and it's, you know, not only a memorable experience for horror bites, it's one of the most memorable horror experiences I had this year. Yeah. And uh you know, that can't, uh, we're going to fall over ourselves to continue <laughs> finding praise to heap upon it, but it really is a one in a, you know, yeah, I mean, one in a lifetime sounds, I mean, sounds kind of wild to say, but it is exactly what you want in a horror bite experience and it is not to be missed. Yeah. I, let's put it this way. We'll be talking about it again. There's yes. no doubt about it before <laughs> the year ends. So, um, but you know, we kind of know what your number one is, but, Pray tell, you know, we just had my, uh, what is it, number three in your, uh, my number one, your number three, sorry. So let's, uh, let's go with your number five. No, my number five. Fucking hell. How do I get that wrong way around? So my number five. <laughs> We're covering a lot. Yeah, We're covering a lot is, this yeah, week. Sorry, too many games. So my number five and your number one is. The River Runs Through Us from developer Signal Flow. And I promise it's not my Massachusetts bias uh, that is making me pick it as number one. However, it is The River Runs Through Us' use of not only a narrative text adventure, which, you know, big props to you, Neil, for this year for putting that genre, subgenre back on my radar. Mm. Something that, you know, my sensibilities as somebody that enjoys video games has never gravitated towards that era of style of play. And yet the river runs through us as a fantastic modernization on that, you know, classical uh, game storytelling mechanic of being a narrative text-based adventure. And yet 
this has the modern day qualities of storytelling and polish and the merging of different mediums of the traditional agency of it being a game with high production values that, you know, are not Mm. indicative of the core group of, you know, text adventures from back in the day. This one is about the uh, tragedy lace setting of Western Massachusetts taking place in a mill town that focuses on Camlin, who is a college student. You know, I just right there uh, relate to so much of that being a, co- you know, yeah. at one point was a college student that went to college in a mill town in Western Massachusetts. So right from the jump, this game was sort of speaking to a setting that I was very familiar with. But it's more than that, right? I think that this is a game that really does bridge the gap between some of perhaps the shortcomings of text adventures, but it has that production value that I mentioned, which is ever evolving, you know, backdrops to the text, which is often a picture of the environment that's in there, but also the sounds that accompany those environments. So whether it be a coffee shop, whether it be an old mill building, whether it be your childhood home and exploring this setting in the shoes of Camelin, who begins to hear, you know, certain strange centuries old flood sounds through her audio equipment that's tied to the tragic past of that Western mill town that she's from, which, you know, had this massive flooding, which destroyed and ravaged the area, which then it was able to come back from eventually. But in having that happen and, you know, cannibalizing the industry that was there and, you know, not to get on soapbox, but it is such a tragedy that is not all that uncommon in Western Mass. Maybe it wasn't all due to flooding, but Western Massachusetts has this history of old mill towns that were the sole, you know, breadwinner of that entire town or that entire area. And, you know, with modernization, revolutions in terms of industry and these things, those mill towns all dried up because those industries, you know, collapsed or had these various changes in, uh, in, you know, demand and whatnot. So those industries shut down which then essentially ravages the town as that was the sole employer Mm. of people in that town. So, you know, that was my soapbox for the episode, (laughs) I promise. Um, But that makes for a really great foundation for a haunting and not in an exploitative sense, right? I think that a lot of the time when you talk about stories that are based in some semblance of historical fiction that then tie into a tragedy, they have a tendency to be very sort of like, oh, well, there's a ghost then that pops up in the town that starts to kill That's not the case with The River Runs Through Us. From the forefront, it's about a setting that has a significance to a character's history that's far removed from that tragedy, and yet they're still feeling the rippling effects of it, whether Mm. it be direct or indirect. Um, And I find that that is the best example of historical fiction in that just because it is not something that is directly tied to a particular character in the modern age, the impact has left some type of impact or an effect on a region that whether or not people realize it has had an impact on what the modernization Mm. of that area was. Um, And, you know, with the river that runs through us, it's the type of thing that it goes to great pains to establish a character that has this history of their own that is briefly unpacked within the context of the demo. But at the same time, you know, their being is very much tied to the setting itself. Um, That's a long-winded way of kind of saying, (laughs) like, the setting complements the characters, and the characters feel right at home within this setting that presents it as more of a personal haunting rather than just a straight-up traditional kind of like, again, there's a ghost tied to this area where a tragedy occurred. Um, And this game explores the intersectionality of that environmental tragedy and this character's personal 
background, which is unpacked briefly. Um, I'll say also, you know, the writing is really very, very personable from the outset. This feels like a character. You get a good semblance of who they yeah. are. At the same time, it ties in this audio uh, nature of them being sort of capturing audio at these certain landmarks, whether it be a cafe, whether it be this babbling brook, but then how that really does inform the investigation into the haunting in a couple of segments that are really anxiety inducing. I found the way in which they're able to use the production value of this game to make for moments that are very, very nerve wracking yeah. and very uncomfortable, um, which, you know, for a text adventure, unless it's detailing something horrific was not something I thought that these types of experiences were really well versed in or capable yeah. of, to be honest. Um, and in this, the way it's able to incorporate sound, the way it's able to incorporate just the most basic of images of a setting, it gives so much more investment to what is happening scene by scene that I found myself gripped by this and engrossed in this in a way I, again, wouldn't think would be capable of for a text adventure. That's, you know, again, maybe I need to reassess how I approach <laughs> some things, but, you know, not being incredibly well-versed in text adventures leading up to this it was something that those slight tweaks to the production value or the expectations of what you can do in a text adventure at the end of the day made this so engrossing that when it ends, it ends just as you're getting more into the haunting. You think you're going to have your first reveal of something mm -hmm. that is in your face and undeniable, unex you know, unexplainable. And it ends. And immediately I went, motherfucker, <laughs> I need another five minutes of this. I'll take another two minutes of this. And of course, this is a demo of a full-fledged game, hopefully, that is, uh, you know, fingers crossed, on the horizon. Yeah. But uh, I found the river runs through us from Signal Flow to be the horror bite that I can't stop thinking about this year. And it's one that I've been able to recommend to friends and family that aren't interested in horror at all. They might just be, you know, buddies that read a lot, that are into, you know, book club side yeah. of things and whatnot. and this was an easy sell to them based on, you know, some of the things that I mentioned here and I mostly had good feedback. So I think that's indicative of yeah, it being an experience that can apply to others that maybe aren't as in the horror trenches as you and I are. Yeah. And I think one of the most important things here is that while you kind of have a more personal experience here that, that connects you with this game demo, you know, and my caveats with this word, you know, that, it doesn't have that and it's a demo and as much as i you know, i've already said you know if a demo is good enough it's going to be on this list because you know we we've made a point of it being short experiences whatever they are you know and ultimately that's what matters you know that's why you know it's in my top five and yet i don't know you know i have no knowledge of Massachusetts history but at the same time this is something that made me want to know about it you know it really sort of it fascinated fascinated me to know about what was going on you know in this past of a place and that's all you want and I think it's so majestic how it handles that you know how it handles a personal history and you know a you know, actual you know, history of the town itself and the city itself, it, the county whatever it, it is there you know it is really able to balance the two things really well you know and, and 
make both of those really interesting. You want to know more about Cam's you know, thing. You want to know more about the tragedy that that's at hand and how it all connects. And as demos go, it does so much and has so much to it that you're instantly like, oh, please let me know more about this, you know, and it's no surprise, you know, when you think about things we've picked and the things that are just demos at this point, you know, the few ones we've picked quite in our top 10, the top eights are, you know, tender does and this, and yet it does the job. They do the job. That is the important thing. They do the job enough to make you like, shit. I have to, I have to make people know about this. I have to make people see what this is going to be about, please. You know, and you know, this is very much a great example of that. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the balancing of the personal history with the, you know, the regional history is so perfectly balanced that it doesn't feel alienating, right? Because, you know, I'm a native, somebody who lives in Massachusetts, and, you know, I have more insight into that, I have a more connection to that. And yet, someone as yourself, as you mentioned, that has no connection to it, is still able to be intrigued by the historical aspect. But at the same time, the what's that main investment, it's in the protagonist and the protagonist's own history tying into the historical history in a way that is not so black and white, but just maybe thematically, mm. right? I think that that is something that is so intriguing to get across to the player in such a short demo, right? I think this one was like an hour, give or take a little longer, but that's granted the nature of like a text adventure, right? Um, and I think that so much is done there in terms of laying a foundation that you can see be leading into a full-fledged mystery horror type of experience um, that, yeah, this one has stuck with me and I played it twice. And like I said, this is one of those rarities of what we cover on the show that I could recommend to anybody that I know that's interested in just good storytelling. Um, you know, some of the other horror things we cover might be a harder sell for some people I know, but this type of thing that uses the haunting aspect, but it's more about telling a really, really well done involved story that happens to have genuinely creepy horror elements in it. Um, you know, there's a segment towards the end of the demo that's very unsettling and very creepy. And if anything, one of the images of one of the buildings look exactly like a building that I went to college. Yeah, in, I uh, which <laughs> definitely freaked me out. But, you know, as you were just commenting, right, I think that it does a good job of setting the stage that even if you don't have that connection, it still is effective in what it's trying to convey. Um, and I find that, you know, just those testimonies that we both just gave, not having the same level of um, – of reference for the material or the setting, and yet it was still just as effective, I find, uh, is the best compliment that we could give this. Yeah, I think this and Heather Doves are, you know, games we'll probably cover in full when they come out, because I can't see how we wouldn't, you know, whatever they turn out to be, I think they have enough to them where we have much to discuss, you know, about what, the, what they're going to be. So yeah, it, that's the beauty of horror bites. You know, it's like demos can provide this sort of window into a promising future, you know, and it'll still be short, but enough, yeah. enough that they are going to warrant their own episode down the line. Well, that's the thing, right? I think with horror bites, what we have uh, made pains to stress to people is that you shouldn't judge an experience, whether or not it's free or if it says this is a quick 
10 minute yeah. hell if it's even a five minute experience right i think that horror bites has been great for me personal you know in addition to enjoying doing it every month um it's the type of thing that has made me reassess how i approach certain games mm-hmm. right i've gotten more into pc gaming over the course of the year helps me yeah. have a gaming pc um but you know being exposed to a variety of types of experiences within horror not only you know triple a and indie but like even more bite-sized experiences that might be off the beaten path. They might be things that from afar, I might be like, well, there's no way I'm going to enjoy this. And yet more often than not, these small experiences are able to excel in a way that really does highlight their creativity, their originality, and more than often than not, some aspect of uh, horror, whether it might not be always terrifying, but it is something that you would classify as coexisting within the realm of horror in a way that's memorable um, that, you know, maybe sometime our, uh, you know, AAA experiences within the same genre aren't capable of, uh, yeah. <laughs> despite their resources and, uh, you know, yeah. uh, I, lack of constraints, seemingly. But <laughs> I understand why. You know, I understand why AAA horror will go for a certain route and why uh, indie horror can take whatever route it wants. Because, I mean, you see it um, even in film discussion. Uh, there are people who are, self-proclaimed horror fans who have a very simple idea of what horror should be it should scare me it's like you realize that to scare you it has to go past the barriers of numbness that you have now to being scared by horror which is like uh, there are so many ways you've been scared that it's not going to you know it's like and you can do that well you can do that badly and you can scare people even now. But horror is so much more than just being scared, you know? It's being repulsed, it's feeling dread, it's feeling despair, it's feeling something that would make you question your own existence. You know, these are all different aspects of horror and you should take them on. And I find that this space of horror gaming has given us so much you know it has given us so many of those parts of horror you know where we aren't just looking for jump scares blah 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 and blood and gore nice as it is great as it is when it is done right we are getting a much wider variety of horror yeah well i think you know our show is a testament of that right i think that how often do we talk about how scary a game is or how scary an experience is Almost never, right? It might be a moment here, a moment there, but that's because I think, and I think it, whether or not it's consciously or not, I think that you and I are people that love horror so much and enjoy a wide, I would say you and I enjoy a variety of horror, right? You know, we'll have our interests here and there that align, but sometimes you'll recommend me a movie that is so outside the realm of what I'd normally watch, and yet I'm able to appreciate it and, you know, vice versa and whatnot. I think that something we've been doing with the show is trying to highlight the fundamentals of horror that maybe sometimes get glanced over because people have a tendency, speaking broadly, genuinely, yeah, like broadly, broadly. Right? I think broadly, people have a tendency to reduce horror to, you know, how scary was that? Or is that going to scare the shit out of me? I'm thinking about conversations I have with friends that are not uh, as in the weeds with horror as you and I are, where they're like, well, they measure things by how scary they are, but when you're taking in so much horror media as we are, 
it's genuinely rare that I end up watching something or playing something that terrifies no. me. But that's not a slight against what it's able to accomplish no. uh, and the variety of, you know, entertainment factors that go into those experiences. Yeah, it, yeah it's no surprise that horror and comedy are so aligned in that way because you know, to do things right means breaking the norms but by breaking the norms means you are going to have people just look at you and blankly and say you're not scary slash funny you know so but you will find an audience that do get it and find it funny or scary and that's what you're waiting for now i think because it's easy enough to do what horror should be and there is a very casual audience that don't really go into horror that all that often that will be happy with that because absolutely they should be because why wouldn't you be? It's like you're not having it all the time. So when it comes to you, it's going to disturb you in a way because you've been avoiding it. You know, that you don't want to go to horror. They are the luckiest people. You know, pe- people who don't really go into comedy or horror and then occasionally get there. Uh, they will be the most affected by any of it because they are not, you know, worn down by it. You know, it's like, this is why I say it with you know, comedy is that there's so much of it is so basic and meta now. Yeah. The, the big thing about comedy now is being meta about your horror and comedy. And in both cases, it's like, don't do anything for me really. You know, it's like in, in horror terms, Scream did that ages ago. And in comedy terms, you know, there, there are smart examples, but, you know, I, I prefer, say, absurdism. You know, uh, you know, the, you know early Steve Martin, that, that, that is what I would say is great comedy. And in terms of great horror, it's like, it's stuff that makes you feel uneasy. You know, you, you know, now that, that is what I want. Stuff that makes me upset, you know, rather than, and it gets easier as you get older because, you know, you, um, you have more about you that really revels in the mortality of yourself. And as a result, that's where you, you mine it from, you know, and so, you know, what else can you do from it? You know, that is where you have to, you should mine your horror from where you are most afraid in life. I'll keep that in mind for Horror Bites Season 2 next year. I'm going to pick only things that will upset Neil. Um, right. <laughs> but no, I, I totally co-sign what you're saying, right? I think that, we, especially with Horror Bites, obviously we cover far more games yeah. than that than we do a majority of uh, the time for episodes. But giving us, and you know, whether it be you know me exposing you to things that you hadn't played before, experienced before in horror, or vice versa, right? I think there's plenty of yeah. that. With and that even segment. guests doing the um, same for us. So. Yeah. And that's been another fantastic facet of Horror Bites, right? In that the last two iterations we had uh, guests on who, you know, people that we're familiar with, but, you know, there's always going to be pockets of their interests within horror that might not always perfectly align with us. Mm. But that is uh, the potential of, you know, exposing somebody to a type of horror that uh, maybe they wouldn't be inclined to or just at the end of the day, something that ends up being a a horrifying surprise. Yeah. but yeah, I mean, that was our horror bite picks of the year. And, you know, we'll probably more than likely uh, be unpacking some of those 
in our game of the year feature, which is going to be broken up amongst the next two weeks. So what we're going to do for next week's episode, we will be covering half of our game of the year content. And then we'll be following through in the following week. Um, but yeah, there's going to be uh, it's going to be a mad dash to try to finalize that top ten list for the both of us. I think, yeah, uh, yeah. which a bit of a scramble. That, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, just this weekend, I spent my time between the Callisto Protocol, uh, Elden Ring, which I had not played more than an hour of, and um, it might not be for horror game of the year, but you know, getting a copy of Ragnarok yeah. uh, has definitely, you know, <laughs> I am over encumbered as they say with horror games at the moment, but it's a good problem to have. It, so, it really uh, is. Yes. And yeah, the, the, I mean, I was looking through my like on raw mentions list and just almost like, I, I want them to be part of my list. I, I really do. Yeah. But it's like the criteria we're looking for when we do these next two episodes of um, uh, horror games of the year is, Generally, we are going to sort of measure on how well they do an aspect of horror, but the game's quality also matters. So it's juggling that sort of balance and deciding where things should uh, exist in that. So yeah, I'm sure it will be as diverse as we have just had with this. You know, <laughs> where, where it wasn't till the end where we really had um, some crossover, but um, yeah. I really look forward to it because Christ, if I have 20 old games, I'm considering God knows what you've got as well. So, so it's, as I said in the intro, right? It's a mad dash at the end of the year trying to compress an entire year in this case into two episodes. Um, but there's so much to consider and still in some cases, usually it's me, uh, behind. <laughs> behind the curve on things. So I need to play catch up before that time. But uh, yeah, you know, once we finally get there, we can exhale, uh, reminisce probably a good amount on the year in general. Um, but yeah, as you know, as always, I look forward to chatting horror with you. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if anyone listening has personal picks they'd like to point out, please do send them our way and we will uh, try our best to include them. Absolutely. But uh, until next time, I will see you then on the other side. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. You can also join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. In addition, you can email us over at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday.